Go to Proverbs 30 tonight, would you? Proverbs chapter 30. Let's get into the Word. Give you a thought tonight uh, that may be a help to you. Just while you're turning there, I would take a testimony tonight. If you have a testimony that's burning on your heart, that you want to give, something you want to thank the Lord for, end of the year, not pulling teeth, not trying to drag it out. But if anybody tonight, and if not, we'll just get right into the Word is what we'll do. Anybody real quick? Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30 here. And um, I, I have been, I've preached the last several months, um, several meetings that they've asked just to preach on family. And, um, and so I've, I've, I've had some sermons that I've worked on for a marriage retreat up in New York and then this past week uh, that I've never preached here. And so let me give you, let me give you a thought. This has to do with relationships. And uh, dealt this, talked this morning a little bit about New Year's resolutions and all these things we want to improve on. Well, a big part of our life is relationships, isn't it? Um, marriage, children, um, parents, uh, very, very important. And, and this relates to relationships. Look at Proverbs 30, look at verse 15. The horse leech hath two daughters, crying, give, give. Well, Rick Lewis understands that. There are three things that are never satisfied, yea, four things, say not, it is enough. The grave and the barren womb, the earth that is not filled with water, and the fire that saith not, it is enough. Five times in Proverbs 30, you'll read that phrase, there be three things, yea, four. And it's not an afterthought, it's not like he was writing and all of a sudden remembered the fourth thing, it's, it's a... Hebrew way of making a point, of highlighting something. It's a way of emphasizing something to get, get your attention. Three things, yea, four, which say, never say it is enough. And it begins with this statement about the horse leech, the horse leech. And I don't know when you did Proverbs 30 if you covered the horse leech or not, but, but I, I, the one thing that we know about the horse leech is that it does not attach itself to horses. Or large mammals. We, we know that. I checked that infallible source of information, Wikipedia. And um, Wikipedia said that there are over 700 species of leeches. It's just a bug that has a mouth on each end, attaches itself to hosts, and just sucks blood out is all that it does. And um, a blood-sucking leech never has enough. It never... Says, I'm full and let's go and let's go find something else. No, it just sucks blood until it dies. And because it is such a strange verse, it lends itself to some fanciful interpretations. Like, who are the two daughters? And there are men who have written commentaries on who are the two daughters of the horse leech. One commentator said it's heaven and hell. Another commentator said it's vampire. Personally, I believe that it means, the interpretation of the verse means that if you have daughters, she's going to suck you dry financially. I believe that's, <laughs> that has been my experience. And so it's got to be that. I don't, I don't know. No one, no one knows, and that's not the point anyway. But the writer reaches into nature and he calls out an insect that is never satisfied. And then he moves into Four things that never say it is 
enough. So very clearly, it's an illustration of greed, things that are never satisfied. He says in verse number 16, the grave, death is never full. No matter how many people die, the grave will always want more. It never says it is enough. The grave and the barren womb. Now, this is not an example of a woman who keeps having children. This is an example of a woman who cannot have children. And when a young wife wants to have children, that desire is so strong that she cannot will it away. We hear it in Rachel, give me children or I die. The desire consumes her. Nothing else matters in her life. The grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not filled with water. No matter how much it rains, the earth will want more. It can rain 10 inches this weekend. And by next weekend, the earth will be dry and parched asking for more rain. It's never satisfied with the amount of rain that it gets. And then... The fire that saith not, it is enough. Fire never stops burning. This summer there will be a wildfire south of 10, Garson Point. They have it every year, all right? There will be one down there. I don't see Brother Rick, but, but you'll have one. Yeah. And, and, and the thing about fire is fire never burns a thousand acres and says, I'm done. I think that's enough. As long as there is fuel, there is fire. So, so here's four things that are never satisfied. They never have enough. When we bring that into the moral realm, what we have is we have greed. Greed never says that's enough. Greed never says that I have all that I want. Greed is never satisfied. Greed in covetous similar words but not synonymous words. Greed is, um, is to desire more and more. Covetous is to desire what somebody else has. So a man finds a nugget of gold on his land and he digs up everything trying to find another gold. That's greed. Covetousness is when he just wants the gold ring that's on your finger. Greed, covetous, it is never, never enough. And so these four things share in discontentment, but they also share in another thing, and that is that we avoid all four things. No one keeps a leech as a if I see a leech on the ground, I step on it. I squash it. They're nasty. No one welcomes death. We do everything that we can just to stay alive. The barren womb is cruel. A woman will try everything from modern medical inventions to old wives' tales, trying to conceive. A wildfire. That, that consumes. It brings the whole neighborhood out to get it under control. And when it's dry... Why, well, even the heathen will start praying for God to send some rain. So it's four things that we avoid. There is no pleasure in having something in your life that is never satisfied. And that's true of relationships. People who cannot be satisfied are no joy to be around. Somebody who can never say it is enough. Somebody that you know you can never do enough for to make them happy. The wife who will never be satisfied with how much he brings home. The husband who will never be satisfied with how she keeps the house. The child who is never satisfied with what they have. 
Have you ever heard, have you ever heard, nothing I ever do is good enough for you? No matter what I do, you are not happy. There's homes that exist in that constant state of discontent and dissatisfaction. But I would tell you something about satisfaction, and that is that satisfaction is always self-attained. And here's what I mean by that. Nobody can really satisfy you or me because we set our own expectations and desires of what would make me happy. I set my expectations, and that's what I will be happy with. But it's an expectation that I set for myself. So if you come up to that level, if you meet that expectation, then I'm happy. But I have become the arbiter of what makes me happy. No one ever just does anything, and you're happy with that. You set the boundaries of what makes you And there are some people, there are some people that are never satisfied because their expectations are beyond reason. But then there's other people that would be satisfied even when their expectations are not met. You may not do everything I expected of you, but I'm I'm satisfied with what you did. And I don't need you to do any more. And rarely will you find a person who can come to that point. That everything that you have done for me in this relationship, I'm happy with it. Because we have this, we, we have this merging of expectations, natural discontent, inherent selfishness, it all comes together. And so a lot of people go through relationships miserable because they're never satisfied. I think about what Paul said in Philippians 4. He said, he said, not that I speak in respect of what, catch this, I have learned to be content in, in whatever state I am in. He says, I have learned. Now, to learn something means I haven't always been that way. I had to learn this. I, I wasn't always a contented soul. I wasn't always satisfied. So I had to learn to be content. I had to learn it. Somebody says, well, this is just how I am. This is how God made me. Well, if this is just how you are, then be something else. I mean, you're not locked into covetousness, are you? You're not locked into a bad spirit or a bad mood. We have to learn contentment. We have to learn satisfaction in our relationships. And it doesn't mean that we don't have concerns. It doesn't mean that we grow. It doesn't mean that we can't come together and compromise and work through problems. But can you ever be satisfied with what you gave me? I, you've done enough. I am satisfied. Four things which never say it is enough. Can you ever in your marriage, your relationship with your children, relationship with your parents, can you ever say it is enough. It's enough. Look at Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45. I'm not preaching long. Genesis 45. Let me show this to you. Genesis 45, it's the story of Joseph, favorite son of his father. He is sold in slavery by his jealous brothers, and his father has been told that he'd been killed by a wild beast. And by the time that we get to Genesis chapter 45, it's been 22 years down the road. Joseph is now the prime minister of Egypt. He is the second in command. He's helping the nation get through a seven-year period of famine, and he is tasked with that. 
People from all over the world are coming to get grain from Egypt and, and among them are his brethren from Canaan. You know the story. Over a course of events, Joseph reveals his true identity to them. They are shocked. They are fearful how he might retaliate. He's not interested in retaliation. He's interested in reconciliation. But I want to see my father. Hey, you go get my father and bring him back. So that's where we're at in the point. Look at Genesis 45, look at 24. They're headed back. So he sent his brethren away and they departed. He said unto them, See that you fall not out by the way. They went up out of Egypt. He came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father. Now just put yourself there. For 22 years they've told their dad, Killed by a wild beast, here's the coat that we found. For 22 years they've lived this lie and now they've been found out. Now now how's this conversation going to go? So in verse 26, they told him saying, Joseph is yet alive. He is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted for he believed them not. And they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. They come back to the father, the aged old patriarch. They tell him the story and, and, and they're trying to convince him that Joseph is still alive and his heart faints within him because for 22 years he's lived with the belief that my son is dead. For 22 years, every birthday, he has mourned that my son is no more. And now my son is alive and he is second in command in Egypt. That means my son has the power to make my life very comfortable. My son actually can grant any wish that I have. But here's all he wants. I just want to see him. Just enough to know that he's alive. He's still here, and all I want is to go see him one more time before I die, and that would be enough. Could we get to the place in our relationships where we said, it's enough just to have you with me, just to have you present in my life? And I'll tell you what teaches us that lesson. It's death. We will all eventually learn that lesson, but for many of us, it will be too late. And the way that Jacob learned that lesson was by Joseph's absence. He has not seen him for 22 years. Now he is going to go see him again, but he does not go with any requests. He does not go with any expectations. He does not expect Joseph to do any favors for him. Uh, we're going to go get grain, but we're not asking Joseph to give it to us. We're going to buy the grain from him I, I, because all I want to do is I just want to be present with him. No expectations. Just to see you and have you present in my life one more time. And it's interesting that, that Jacob doesn't start asking questions. You told me it was dead. What about the story 22 years ago? What about the wild beast? That, that was all. What, what, what are you telling me now? And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't want to punish anybody for the lie. It, it's not that, that you boys owe me an expectation. I'm going to cut you out of the will. None, here's the thing about it. None of that matters. 
The only thing that matters is that I'm going to go see him and I'm not dwelling on what I have missed out on, what I could have had, mourning all these lost years. It's just enough that he is alive. It's an amazing thing that the absence of his son taught him perspective. And here's what it taught him. That in all the narrative of Genesis, Jacob never asked one question about the past. He may have outside the scriptures, but as far as the scripture record is concerned, no questions. He doesn't address the sins of his sons, which were very grievous sins. He doesn't say that somebody has to pay for this. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't punish them. He doesn't take anything away. He doesn't disown them for lying to him. No. All that I want to do is I just want to go see my son. And can I tell you, it's impressive to me that he doesn't tear his family up more over something that happened 22 years ago. I'm not digging into ancient history and bring up something that you said six months ago and you did this three years ago. No, I'm satisfied just to have my son here's what he learned. He learned it's more important to have my family than to have a perfect family. I'd rather have my imperfect family than to have them meet every standard that I have and be so miserable for them when they come around. And this is the tyranny of divorce. That's where a man can't stand his wife and divorces her, and then discovers later on, maybe she wasn't as bad as I thought. I'd rather have her than just to be alone. It's, it's better, it is better to sit in silence than to sit alone. It's better to take a drive with somebody and there's no engaging conversation than to take the drive by yourself. Can you ever be satisfied and say, you may not be perfect, but you're here. You are here with me, and I am satisfied with your presence. Just have you here. Guys, I tell you, I'm not turning this into a marriage conference. I'll tell you something, guys. Every woman in here has flaws. Every one of them. But let me tell you something. She already knows her flaws. She already knows her flaws. Yeah. And here's what we want to do because we're the paragons of perfection, we got it all together. Organized, disciplined, smart, logical, you know, dealing with an emotional wreck. We, we got it together, okay? I know what to do. I know how to do it. I know the best way to do it. If you just do it my way, we'll all be good. And here's what we want to do. Here's what we want to do. I'm going to fix her. I'm going to help her. I'm going to help her, you know, get through. It. But I'm going to tell you something about it. Every woman in this building, all right? Took me a long time to learn this. There ain't a woman in this room that wants to be fixed. You, you, you young guys are getting married or just married. I'm just telling you, I know she needs to be fixed. She don't want to be fixed, especially by you. <laughs> if there's going to be any fixing, it's going to be Jesus fixing me, and Jesus don't need your help. <laughs> and you ever get to the place you say, I don't really need to fix anything in you. You're just here. Your presence is 2 Samuel 24. Still with me? 2 Samuel 24. Look at, look, at, look at this real quick. Real quick. 2 Samuel 24. David has sinned, numbering the people. 
And God has given David the option of choosing his punishment. David, three years of famine, three months of military defeat, or three days of pestilence. And David decided he didn't like any of those options, and so he fell on the mercy of God. Lord, I, I can't choose. And God's going to punish him and the nation. It'll be up to God to what extreme and how much. So 2 Timothy 24 and verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. There died of the people from Dan, Ever and Beersheba, 70,000 men. If I'm reading that, that's day one. Verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, it is enough. Stay now thy hand. God sent a pestilence upon Israel, 70,000 men killed in one day. And it seems like that then the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to continue three days of pestilence. He stretches out his hand over Jerusalem to continue the judgment. And God says, no more. It, 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 it is enough. I could do more. You deserve more. But you have been punished enough. I could make the nation pay more. And I would be just in doing that. But the wrath of God is satisfied. Not pleased because he had to punish the nation, but I, 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 I don't want to see any more punishment. It's enough. They said, what has that got to do with family? Sometimes a family member wrongs us and it requires some repentance and even maybe some reconciliation. Maybe it's the punishment of a child. Maybe it's a spouse who's grievously wronged and hurt the marriage and has to come in and say that I'm sorry and how do I make this right? Can you be like God and say that's enough? There's been enough suffering. We've cried enough over this thing. There's been enough pain. There's, there's been enough. There's, I, I don't want to see you suffer. Feel bad. Feel grief. Feel guilty. I, I don't want to see you suffer over the, the punishment has been enough. Jacob is satisfied just with his son's presence and God is satisfied with the nation's punishment. And God's mercy allows him to say, no more, no more. Your mercy as a parent allows you to say you have been punished enough. Maybe the child's calm and tears and remorse and a broken heart. Truly sorry for what he's done. But once the repentance is clear, the punishment is done. I'm not bringing this back up. I'm not holding it like a cloud over your head. I'm not going to use this like a club to beat you up. The next time that you mess up, I'm not going to bring it back up. No. And there are some fathers that can never be satisfied with how they have punished their child. It's just got to keep it alive, keep it alive, keep it alive, keep it alive. Can, can, can a spouse say, I'm satisfied? with what you've suffered through. Your punishment, your grief, no grudges, no bringing it up again, no more making you feel like a heel. I, I'm done with this. 
And I think what this touches on is the fact that we often take things too far. You can take your silence for too long. You can sulk for too long. You can keep your anger for too long. You can scold that child for too long. You can punish too long. You can ground a child for too long. I hate grounding, but you can do that for too long. And this is not a message on child rearing, but you can keep that offense. You can keep it alive. You can keep it alive because you can use that as a weapon. I think that punishment ought to be swift, it ought to be appropriate, and it ought to be done. Done. And sometimes a man, when he is a bully in his insecurity, sometimes a man wants his wife to feel miserable and to feel like a heel. And sometimes she walks in and she can't look in the eye and she's always got her head down because there is some bully in her life that is just beating her down and beating her down. And there's some kind of a sadistic joy in reminding you over and over and over something that you did four months ago. And some ladies can take a failure and use that like a hammer to beat him up. But can you ever be like God? Say, it's enough. You were wrong. You paid the price. We've been through it. Move on. The punishment is enough. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Let me show you another one. There's 11. I won't show you 11 tonight. Matthew 10. Your presence is enough. Your punishment is enough. Matthew 10. Look at verse 24. Matthew 10, 24, the disciple is not above his master nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? The Lord's commissioning his 12 disciples going to the village of Israel to preach two by two. And he tells them, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be falsely accused, just like the world will persecute him. They're going to treat you the same way that they treat me. He says, if they call the master of the house Beelzebub, then that's what they're going to call the servants of the house. They're going to call you Beelzebub. So what Jesus is doing is he's comparing his ministry to theirs. He's comparing the treatment that they can expect to how he is treated. I have been persecuted, they're going to persecute you. I have been called Beelzebub, they're going to call you Beelzebub. And he says, the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It's enough for the disciple that he be as, that's enough. If the disciple is as his master, if the servant is as his Lord, it's enough that he be as his master, but he's not expected to be more. The disciples were striving to be like him. None of them expected to be greater than him. None of those disciples said, you know, when Jesus is off the scene, I think that I could do a lot better. I think I can have a bigger ministry and do more. None of them thought that. No, no. What we're trying to do is we're trying to be like, if I can be just like the master, that would be enough. And Jesus said that the servant is not expected to be greater than the master just to be like him. He never expected them to perform at a higher level than himself. If you be just like me, that would be enough. So can you ever say that someone's performance is enough? 
Most children grow up wanting to be just like mom and dad, right? Every little boy looks at his dad, and my dad is the biggest, strongest, greatest man alive, and one day I'm going to be just like him. He doesn't look at his dad and say, you know, I think I can be better than old pops. I, I, I think one day, I think that I... I, I, just, I, just think my, I, I just think I can be, he doesn't, he, if I could just be like him. Every little girl looks at mama and says, if I could just, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be just like mama. Now, one day they grow up and they may see some weaknesses in their parents and say, I don't want to replicate that in my life. And I, I'm gonna, but, but growing up, if I can be just like them. And parents need to recognize that. And here's the reason why. You don't ever want to put in your child that their being their best is not enough. And be careful, be careful, be careful that you don't expect more of your children than you expect of yourself. So before you express dissatisfaction with their performance, ask yourself, are they doing better than you? They may not read their Bible more than you. But are you okay if they read their Bible just like you? They may not pray more than you. But would you be okay if they prayed just like you? Is it enough? Is it, I thought you'd be shouting by now. Is it enough that they treat their siblings... The same way that you treat your spouse? Or do you expect them to be more than the master? Would you be content if your children turned out to be the exact kind of Christian that you are? See, if we want our children to be more, then we have to be more. Because I cannot say that the child needs to be more than the parent. If I think that my wife should be a better Christian, okay? Now, I think she's a great Christian. I'm just using it as a wildly hypothetical, all right? But if I thought that my wife should be a better Christian, I'll tell you the best way to do that is for me to be a better Christian. Me to work on me, and maybe through example and leadership, it would help her grow in her Christian life. Maybe I should work on me, and me be the best me and the best Christian that I can, and through my life and example, motivate somebody and bring them along. But can you ever say, your performance is enough? It's enough. Look at Mark chapter 14, almost done. One more. Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. And look at verse 32. Mark 14, 32. They came to a place which is named Gethsemane. He says to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy and said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed. That if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? 
Couldst thou not, not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The garden of Gethsemane seen night of the betrayal. He leads the disciples to the entrance of the garden, leaves the disciples behind, goes farther into the garden at the end of three, Peter, James, and John. He asks them to stay, pray. He goes farther into the garden to pray by himself. If it be possible, let this cup pass me. Nevertheless, not my will, thy will be done. It's the darkest hour of the anguish of his soul. Nobody has ever entered into the anguish of Gethsemane. I don't think any man has ever fully understood the anguish of our Lord. He comes back to the three. He finds them sleeping. He says, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Verse 39 indicates that he went off again to pray for a little while, came back, found them sleeping again. Verse 40, he comes back the third time. They didn't mean to fall asleep, but their eyes were heavy. You ever been 2 o'clock in the morning trying to drive, get home? I got an hour. If I could just, if I could just, just trying to stay awake, drinking coffee and Red Bulls and rolling the window down, and trying to chew on ice. Just, I've done that many, many times. And that's where they're at. And finally, he comes to them and he says, "Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. It is." The greatest hour of his ministry, the most difficult hour and in his humanity, he's fearful of what he is about to endure. We see the humanity, humanity here. He's about to be separated from God, from God because of sin that he did not commit, that we might be made the righteousness of God. And all that he asks is for these men to stand with him, just pray for me like I have prayed for you, I don't need you to rescue me. I don't need you to take a sword out and cut somebody's ear off. I don't need you to fix the situation. Really, all that I need is I need you just to be with me and I need you to pray for me. And I think they prayed, but they didn't pray as much as he asked. And it's not because they didn't care. It's easy for us to preach against them. But how many of you have prayed for a solid hour in the middle of the night? And it's not because they said, this is not our concern. We have other things to do. It's too dangerous. No, I think that they really wanted to help, but they are clothed with flesh. They tried to stay awake, but their eyes are heavy. They, they wanted to be there for Jesus, but, but they weren't. They, they, they did as much as they could, and finally Jesus says, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. Here's what he's saying. He has prayed three times for the Father to take this cup from him, and he knows that the Father's not going to. This is what I have to do. This is what I came to do, and there's nothing that any man can do to help me. Right. You men have done all that you can. 
but you cannot take this cross from me. You tried to stay awake and you tried to pray. You wanted to, you've tried. And for whatever you've prayed, it's enough. There's another passage that says that angels came to minister to him during this time. And here's the reason why. The help that he needs is beyond human help. There's nothing they could do to help him. And this is something he's going to have to have divine assistance from. And he doesn't get angry at the disciples. And he doesn't scold them. You know, when I get out of the grave, I don't have nothing ever to do with you again. He doesn't expect them to do more than they are able to do. And very graciously, he says, you're done now. There really isn't anything that you can do to help me at this hour. The hour has come. I have to go. Perhaps disappointed that they couldn't stay awake and pray for an hour. But I'm satisfied with what you have done. When we go through a hard time, we look for those closest to us to help us. We look to those people to assist us to do something. I, um, I try to be a fixer. I don't know how to be sympathetic. I am sympathetic. I don't know how to express that. So I try to be a fixer. What can I do to fix this? But sometimes I can't fix it. Sometimes those who are closest to you are powerless to help you. When I found out that mom had cancer, I want to go in to fix it for her. But I can't fix it. I'll sit with her tomorrow. That's not fixing it. I pray. Oh, have I ever prayed? That's all I can do. Because we don't have the understanding, we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the expertise, we don't have the ability. But Jesus said, you have prayed. Not for as long as I ask you to, but you have prayed, and that is enough. I know you would have done more, but you've done enough. I'm satisfied with what you've done, I don't ask you to do any more than that. Can you look at your spouse tonight and say, it's enough. You don't have to do anything to make me happy. You're here. You're present. That's enough. Can you, can you say, I know you were wrong. We've suffered enough. I'll never bring it up again. I'll, I'll, in the heat of an argument, I'll never try to punish you again. I don't want you to feel shame or grief or remorse. You have suffered enough. And you look at that child, I do not expect you to be greater than me. I'm not going to hold you to a higher standard than I hold myself. I know you want to do more. I know that you would fix it. But this is a trial that I have to bear. You have prayed. And that's enough. That's all that I ask of you. Just pray. Would you bow your heads with me? It is enough. We'll close the service in just a minute, but maybe tonight, maybe you want to just come and gather around the altar, final time of prayer before we dismiss and go home. And, or if there's any area of life that 
We want to improve in this new year. It's in relationships. Relationships. That's what life is made up of. Relationships. In the last several weeks and months, I've had pastors call me. I've had people calling me. Some horrible situations, Tim. Horrible situations. And all I can do is say, I'll pray for you. And that's all that I can do. But I pray that in this new year that God strengthens your marriage. God strengthens your relationship with your children and your parents. They may not be perfect, but it's your family. It's your relationship. That's what it is. Would you take a minute and pray? Come.